Part of me misses school. Being forced to learn was never on my agenda. Somebody telling me to know one thing and then regurgitate it on a piece of paper or else they wouldn't approve somehow was misaligned with my values in life. But now that I'm in my mid-30s, and learning is a choice. A choice that is rivaled by any other thing I could do. Video games. Exercise. Mostly video games. It becomes that much more valuable to me when something piques my interest to the point where I can't help but learn. And a large reason that occurs is Wikipedia. If we're all being honest with ourselves, it's because clicking through Wikipedia articles is easy, and to me and many others, is fun. There's even a game. You know, can you get to ketchup from RuPaul in under seven clicks? That's not the exact parameters of the game. The game is up to you. You make up the game. All games are made up, and you can make up whatever you... That's not the point. The point is, sometimes you find yourself in a rabbit hole. Which is what happened here. You've already read the title. If you don't know who Oscar Wilde is, he was an Irish poet and playwright. He wrote The Picture of Dorian Gray. But I knew him most so from being criminally convicted of being gay, ostensibly. It was one of the first celebrity trials. It was, at the time, as big as the OJ trial, if the OJ trial didn't have TV, which is a large part of why the OJ trial was popular. This is It's a bad analogy. It was big. And, obviously, in historical retrospect, really messed up. But when you get into the minutiae, of his trial, there is a Wikipedia game that comes to light. You can get from Oscar Wilde to the Matterhorn in under seven clicks. In fact, it's much less. And I did, but going the opposite way. When you open up Wikipedia, on the top right, it always has a today's featured article. And on this day, it was the Matterhorn, which I had seen in motivational posters, and I had seen the picture before. You've seen the Matterhorn. It's a horn that's a mountain. It's perhaps the most aesthetically pleasing mountain on Earth, arguably. I am arguing that right now. And I clicked in, and three hours later, I had read the court proceedings of Oscar Wilde's gross indecency trial... And I was like, how did I get here? And I'll tell you, the journey is truly interesting, which is what made me do this. Because 
I think other people should hear it. Right off the bat, there are some facts that I think are important to know, and I think it's important to hear it how I learned it, from the top of the mountain downward. The Matterhorn is the sixth highest mountain in the Alps, with undoubtedly the best name, as we've previously mentioned. It's known for its appearance. It looks like a giant angry horn. Basically, it looks like where the Grinch lives. It's an incredibly popular tourist attraction, along with Zermatt, the town underneath it. About 3,000 people summit the Matterhorn annually. It was first ascended on the 14th of July, 1865, by a party of seven, three of which lived. And as such, it is an obvious death trap. When you Wikipedia the list of the highest peaks in the Alps, you start to notice that all of them were summited in the 1800s. As you read down the years so close to one another, it becomes like reading a race in real time. You can see the enthusiasm in the dates. You see, climbing was all the rage in the 1800s. And at the time, a large competition was taking place atop gigantic pointed rocks in the earth. And when you get to the bottom of the list, you can see that the last peak in the Alps climbed was the Matterhorn. The mountain, which I urge you to look up a picture of, is truly a monster in the distance. I needed to know more about it. But once you find out it's not even the highest mountain in the Alps, let alone close to the world's top 10 highest peaks, perhaps your initial interest may fade. I know mine momentarily did. I have this, and I think many people do, infatuation with Mount Everest, the International Space Station, the Marianas Trench, the biggest, the fastest, the best. So it takes something special for me to stay on a Wikipedia page that isn't learning how the descent of Mount Everest is more treacherous than the ascent, which is a true fact and also applicable to the story that you're listening to right now. What made me actually stay, other than how cool it looks, was the death toll. This curled and mangled rock face held my interest because a large portion of the people who tried to climb it in the 1800s are dead. And not from old age. It's one of the deadliest peaks in the world. Over 500 climbers have died trying to conquer this rock, including four of the seven that made up the climbing party first to ascend, an incident that ostensibly ended recreational climbing for an entire generation. And, as previously mentioned... This mountain is also tied to famous poet and author Oscar Wilde's downfall in a truly intimate way that I think is fascinating. The moment that you begin to metaphorically climb the mountain that is the Matterhorn, it instantly becomes many stories all rolled into one. This is the story of Oscar Wilde's indecency trial, an awful man named John Douglas, and the first ascent of the Matterhorn. John Douglas, the man that no one liked. The golden age of alpinism was the decade in mountaineering between Alfred Willis's ascent of the Wetterhorn in 1854 and Edward Wimper's ascent of the Matterhorn in 1865. So, 
let's start at the beginning, in 1854, and Alfred Willis. Sir Alfred Willis was a judge of the High Court of England and Wales. It's like the Supreme Court in America, but with better wigs. And he was also a well-known mountaineer. He was the third president of the Alpine Club, a place where rich white men met in London who all really liked chilling in the Alps. At the same time, as you deep dive on the man, he was also a gay-bashing troglodyte who wrote a legal document called An Essay on the Principles of Circumstantial Evidence, illustrated by numerous cases, that still gets referenced often in academic settings today. And this is the place where you can say you have to judge historical figures by the times that they were in. The fight for tolerance on many a front is still very much ongoing. So I think it can just be said, for a context to all of this, that yes, in the mid-1800s, a larger percentage of Earthlings were less tolerant than they are today of anyone who is not like them. But honestly, I would shove that to the back of your minds. This story is not locked in a prison of 150 years ago. There are television shows to this day that predict a five years from now revolution where all of this is reality again. And by the way, it feels like a stone's throw from reality at any given point. A white, straight, male judge who's intolerant? Oh, crazy! Like, it's not. That's the point. Anyway, moving on. What Alfred Willis is most known for, though, is being the judge who gave the maximum punishment at the end of Oscar Wilde's indecency trial, which it's called an indecency trial. That's a very nice way of saying, you're gay, now go to jail. Said maximum punishment was two years hard labor and prison, to which Judge Willis described the sentence, the maximum that he could give, as totally inadequate for a case such as this, and that the case was the worst I've ever tried, basically saying, I wish I could have given you life in prison. Wilde's response while in the courtroom was, And I? May I say nothing, my lord? But Judge Willis did not hear that, as it was drowned out in cries of shame in the courtroom, which he allowed. The way that Oscar Wilde ended up in this court case to begin with was that he was engaged in a homosexual relationship with a man named Lord Alfred Douglas, whose father is the titular John Douglas, who was an infamously secular and opinionated man, plus the main character of our story. John, at the time, in the English high society, was looked down upon. He had had many divorces. He had a tinge of brutality to him. He was an atheist. And he had an association with the boxing world. So he was looked upon as white trash, except he had money. He also, by the way, published the rules for modern boxing that someone else wrote and then he got all the credit for. Which was mainly what got him looked down upon so much. Although boxing being a brutish affair did not mean that the rich people didn't watch it. They were just being judgmental assholes. John had five kids. His eldest son was named Francis. And 
Francis was made a baron. And when you get named baron back then, you get an automatic seat in the House of Lords, which is a big-time deal. John resented his son for sitting in that chamber, a chamber that had been refused to him previously because of what everyone thought of him. And also, the way that Francis got that seat, which was most likely because of a relationship that Francis had with the Earl of Rosebery, whose name was Archibald Primrose, that promoted Francis to that seat, and then subsequently became the Prime Minister. The disdain between father and son was public and often. And eventually, Francis Douglas would go on to allegedly kill himself. It was called a hunting accident, which was a commonly used term at the time for suicide or murder. He did so after the rumor got out that he was stucking his boss, the recent Earl of Rosebery and now Prime Minister, whom Francis was both a secretary and almost assuredly a lover as well. This all occurred only eight months after the Prime Minister came into power. John Douglas said of his son post-death, quote, he died unmarried and without issue, unquote. John Douglas would also later say of the Prime Minister, who he so lovingly referred to as a snob queer, that he had corrupted both of his sons, and held him responsible for his first son's apparent suicide. I'll take you shot your son for a hundred, Alex. John's other son, Lord Alfred, was also most likely homosexual, but instead of prime ministers, he was more into poets. Or at least one poet in particular, which was Oscar Wilde. John Douglas hated that two out of three of his sons were gay, and blamed the Prime Minister once more for this egregious coincidence. As you dive deeper down into John Douglas, it does get even more interesting. His father also killed himself in a hunting accident, a very clumsy family indeed. Add to that that John's wife Sybil, whom after four sons and a daughter successfully sued for divorce in 1887 on the grounds of his adultery, which was not a thing at the time, and won. Which is insane. And it shows the amount of people both in the public and within the court who hated John. This is a man whose second marriage was annulled a year into it. Another rare occurrence. Literally, nobody liked him. John had three sons and an awful relationship with all three of them. The one we have yet to discuss was named Percy. John called him that so-called skunk son of mine and disowned him for marrying a clergyman's daughter. A scandal indeed. So needless to say, during the Oscar Wilde trial that John Douglas was the antagonist of, his sons were not big fans of him. During the trial in 1895, John assaulted Percy on a London street, leading to both men being arrested and charged with disturbing the peace to a tune of $500 at the time. And I'll save you some time converting that into American dollars. It was a small fortune. In 1900, on his deathbed, John Douglas spat on Percy when he came to visit him. So yeah, not a great relationship all around. Three weeks following their father's funeral, the new Lord Queensberry, who was Percy, it would have been Francis, but we all know what happened there, 
and Lord Alfred visited Oscar Wilde in Paris. Wilde recalled that they were, quote, in deep mourning and the highest spirits. The English are like this, unquote. John Douglas had younger siblings. The brother committed suicide by slicing his own throat, which is metal as hell. And the sister was Florence Dixie, a famous feminist, war correspondent, traveler, and writer. Incredibly interesting woman. Look her up after you listen to this. Don't stop listening to this. After you listen to this, look her up. She's amazing. John Douglas's younger brother was Reverend Lord Archibald Edward Douglas, known for his role in Home Children. Have you heard of Home Children? Because I hadn't. It was the Child Migration Scheme, which is a nice way of saying human trafficking, founded by Annie McPherson in 1869, under which more than 100,000 children were sent from the United Kingdom to Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and South Africa. It's not clear how much Lord Archibald knew of the whole slavery part of it, but still, he was standing next to her, and if he wasn't, you know, having his fingers in his ears and elbows over his eyes, it'd be hard not to see or hear nothing. And then, there was John's other younger brother... Lord Francis Douglas, for whom John's eldest son and future hunting accident is named after, that died two years before his nephew and his namesake was born during the first ascent of the Matterhorn. And more specifically, during the first descent of the Matterhorn. So John Douglas is in a pickle. He doesn't want any of his sons taking over his seat Francis, the one that superseded him while he was alive, is now dead. And he has all of this anger that he then funnels towards his younger son's lover, Oscar Wilde. So then simultaneously, both of their downfalls begin. The Golden Age of Climbing The Alpine Club is why we know the Matterhorn to be the murder mountain that it is today. It was the first Alpine Club ever created in the UK, or anywhere for that matter, and it was instrumental in the development of mountaineering during the Golden Age of Alpinism, which spanned from 1854 to 1865. Said Golden Age was dominated by British Alpinists and their Swiss and French guides. Or, well, you can call them guides, if you wish, but really they're just Sherpas who were pushing and pulling the Brits up the mountain. And then when the Brits got back to Britain, they had a story about how they were amazing adventurers that they could tell to their aristocratic friends at future dinner parties. As previously mentioned, this golden age started with Justice Willis, the judge from Oscar Wilde's trial, summoning the Wetterhorn in 1854. He would then grow old before ever meeting or knowing who Wilde was, not sentencing the famous poet until 1895. Nonetheless, from 1854 on, climbing mountains as sport became highly fashionable in the UK. Oh, and by the way, despite several well-documented earlier descents of the Wetterhorn, and the fact that Justice Willis was guided to the top, he still is so bold as to call himself the first. History 
calls himself the first. Up until right now, I had been talking about it like it was the first ascent because that is what is in the history books. Even in his obituary, it reads, Certainly the first who can be said with any confidence to have stood upon the real highest peak of the Wetterhorn proper. When that is 100% not the case. But okay. Enter the Matterhorn. The first ascent of the Matterhorn, the last mountain in the way of conquering the Swiss Alps, was led by Edward Wimper, who had already failed eight separate times. This time, though, was going to be different. This time, he was going up with the most valued mountain man in the game, whose name was Michael Cross. But, before he could ascend, Michael was offered more money by another avid climber named Charles Hudson, who also wanted to ascend the Untamed Beast. The night before both parties left, they met in the town of Zermatt underneath the Matterhorn and decided to join each other as they had just learned that an Italian party was there as well and leaving in the morning. So, Edward's final crew, in total, was himself, a 20-year-old athletic artist and leader who really wanted to finally get to the top of this mountain on his ninth try. Charles Hudson, his adversary. Michael Cross, the most respected mountain man this side of the Atlantic. Douglas Haddow, who was Charles Hudson's protege. And two local guides, Peter Togwalder and his son of the same name. Oh, and by the way, Lord Francis Douglas, who was only 18 at the time. Before leaving, Charles Hudson made it very clear to Edward Wimper that his partner, Douglas Haddow, was good to climb this mountain. He told him that he had done Mount Blanc in less time than most men, while exclaiming, I consider that he is a sufficiently good man to go with us. I suppose it has to be said. Climbing a mountain like this, even with a Sherpa, is incredibly difficult. You have to have an amount of cardio to even be on your feet. And Edward Wimper was questioning Douglas Haddow's ability to stand on flat ground, let alone a mountain. But Charles Hudson said he could do it, and they took his word for it. This will obviously become important later, where Edward Wimper will claim in retrospect that the entire expedition going downhill was Mr. Haddow's fault, whom, now, history also considers to be a novice climber. Wimper and his party left Zermatt early in the morning of July 13, 1865. Meanwhile, the Italian party began their ascent three hours earlier. Even with Haddo needing, quote, required continual assistance, unquote, and starting hours after the Italians, the Wimper party summited successfully in two days' time, with Cross and Wimper reaching the top first. Edward Wimper had done this before. He knew the best way up, even while dragging an anvil behind him. Wimper would write of the event, The slope eased off, and Cross and I dashing away, ran a neck-and-neck race, which ended in a dead heat. At 1.40pm, the world was at our feet, and the Matterhorn was conquered. Not a footstep could be seen. 
Precisely at this moment, the Italian party were approximately 400 meters below, still dealing with the most difficult parts of the ridge, a side of the mountain that Edward Wimper decided not to take. The way Edward would describe it was, when the Italian party saw them on the summit of the mountain, they gave up their attempt and went back down. Later, historians would write of this moment a little differently. Quote, In order to ensure his rivals knew they were beaten, Wimper rather unsportingly shouted at the Italian team from the top and hurled rocks to make a clatter. The Italians turned and fled. I'll take hubris for a thousand, Alex. While atop the mountain, Wimper took his time, he sketched a scene, and he built a tower of stones to commemorate the conquering of the Alps. The tired yet adrenaline-filled group stayed an hour total on the summit before they began their descent of the treacherous Hornley Ridge. The order on the rope during the descent was Craws going down first, followed by Haddow, then Hudson, Lord Douglas, old Peter Togwalder, Wimper, and young Peter Togwalder bringing up the rear. The accident occurred due to Haddow slipping on the descent not far from the summit, pulling Craws, Hudson, and Douglas down the north face of the mountain. As it was pulled, the rope between these four and the other three members of the party Wimper and the two Togwalders, father and son, snapped, saving them from the same fate as their friends. Many have blamed Hudson for insisting on the presence of the inexperienced Haddow in the party and for not checking the quality of the rope or the boots that Haddow was wearing. Some have blamed Haddow himself for his known incompetence. Some have blamed the father, Peter Togwalder, for giving up the fight to save his fellow climbers. Wimper would later describe the deaths as follows. Michael Cross had laid aside his axe, and in order to give Mr. Haddow greater security, was absolutely taking hold of his legs and putting his feet, one by one, into their proper positions. As far as I know, no one was actually descending at the time. Though, I cannot speak with certainty, because the two leading men were partially hidden from my sight by an intervening mass of rock. But it is my belief, from the movements of their shoulders, that Craws, having done as I have said, was in the act of turning around to go down a step or two himself at the moment where Mr. Haddow slipped and fell against him, knocking him over. I heard one startled exclamation from Craws then saw him and Mr. Haddow flying downward. In another moment, Hudson was dragged from his steps and Lord Francis Douglas immediately behind him. All this was the work of a moment. Immediately, we heard Cross's exclamation. Old Peter and I planted ourselves as firmly as the rocks would permit. The rope was taut between us, and the jerk came on us both as one man. We held but the rope broke midway between Togwalder and Lord Francis Douglas. For a few seconds, we saw our unfortunate companions sliding downward on their backs and spreading out their hands, endeavoring to save themselves. They passed from our sight uninjured, disappeared 
one by one, and fell from precipice to precipice onto the Matterhorn Gletscher below, a distance of nearly 4,000 feet in height. From the moment the rope broke, it was impossible to help them. So perished our comrades. For the space of half an hour, we remained on the spot without moving a single step. Cross's body, together with those of Hudson and Haddow, were recovered from the Matterhorn Glacier. Cross was buried in the south side of Zermatt Churchyard, on the other side from the graves of Hudson and Haddow. Lord Douglas, on the other hand, was never found. The rival party of Italian alpinists reached the Matterhorn summit three days later, and none of them perished. Did old Togwalder cut the rope? Only father, son, and Wimper know this. A controversy ensued as to whether the rope had actually been cut, but a formal investigation could not find any proof. The accident haunted Wimper forever. He writes, Every night, do you understand? I see my comrades of the Matterhorn slipping on their backs, their arms outstretched, one after the other, in perfect order at equal distances. Cross the guide, then Haddow, then Hudson, and lastly Douglas. Yes, I shall always see them. Queen Victoria considered banning climbing to all British citizens, but decided, after consultation, not to forbid mountaineering after this incident took place. 46 years later, shortly after returning home from another climb in the Alps, Wimper became ill, locked himself in his room, and refused all medical treatment. He died sick and alone at the age of 71. Do you think Togwalder cut that rope? Do you think a father saved his son? Or do you think the rope snapped in the exact place that history mentions? That secret, if there was one, died with those three men. Another Douglas Tragedy the Matterhorn incident happened days before Lord Francis's older brother, John Douglas, was to assume his majority as the ninth Marquis of Queensbury. As guests gathered for a lavish celebration in his honor, word came that Lord Francis Douglas had fallen to his death with three others after achieving the first successful ascent of the Matterhorn. John Douglas immediately traveled to Zermatt, with the intention of bringing home his brother's body, but came to find that nothing had been found of Lord Francis but some tattered shreds of his clothing. Upon hearing of his brother's fate, John, without guide and by moonlight, attacked the Matterhorn to find his brother's body. It was only a matter of chance that two guides found and rescued him eventually before he died of the cold, unsuccessful. John wrote apologetically to his sister Florence. I thought and thought where he was, and called him, and wondered if I should ever see him again. I was half mad with misery, and I could not help it. Francis's loss was deeply felt by his entire family. 
1876, Florence would accompany John on his return to Zermatt, and he would show her the slopes where Francis had died. Beyond the family, the tragedy was a long-running sensation reported by newspapers all around the world. To this day, one of Haddow's shoes can be seen in Zermatt's Matterhorn Museum, together with the infamous snapped rope. In Wimper's 1871 book, Scrambles Amongst the Alps, he detailed his Matterhorn climb and closed with famous words of warning for fellow climbers. Climb if you will, but remember that courage and strength are not without prudence, and that a momentary negligence may destroy the happiness of a lifetime. Do nothing in haste, look well to each step, and from the beginning, think what may be the end. In spite of Wimper's words of caution, approximately 500 mountaineers since 1865 have perished while scaling the Matterhorn, a death toll nearly double that of Mount Everest. Oscar Wilde never wrote a poem about this brilliantly dangerous peak. It may never have even entered his consciousness to care of the Swiss Alps at all. But the tangled web of this deadly mountain and his own personal grievances, led by a terrible man torn apart, perhaps did deserve some prose. The English novelist and poet Thomas Hardy wrote a poem called Zermatt to the Matterhorn. And it has nothing to do with Wilde and his struggles against the norm. But the words do ring true, as it is to the mountain's cruel nature and humanity's inability to stray from a challenge. Thanks for listening. 32 years since, up against the sun, seven shapes, thin atomies to lower sight, laboringly leapt and gained thy gabled height, and four lives paid for what the seven had won. They were the first by whom the deed was done, and when I look at thee, my mind takes flight to that day's tragic feat of manly might, as though, till then, of history thou hadst none. Yet ages ere men topped thee, late and soon, thou didst behold the planets lift and lower, sourced, maybe, Joshua's pausing sun and moon, and the betokening sky when Caesar's power approached its bloody end. Yea, even that noon, when darkness filled the earth, till the ninth hour 